Well, this is always my favorite week of the year where we get to look back over the past year and kind of see everywhere we've been. Uh, many years ago, I, when I first did the first year in review, I brought up uh, Jesus' most famous sermon from Matthew chapter 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. And he ends that story with a parable or a story that I used to always misunderstand. Uh, many of you are familiar with the story. It's, it talks about there's two people are building a house. One builds on the rock and one builds on the sand. And when the winds, the storms of life, the trials of life come, the one that's built on the sand gets washed away and suffers a disaster, whereas the one that's built on the rock is the one that stands. And forever, I always thought that that parable was talking about there's two kinds of people, two ways to live. You can live in a relationship with Jesus Christ, or you can live outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. When you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, your house is on the rock. When you're not, your house is on the sand. But if you read the story, read what he says, that's not actually what he's saying. What he actually says in there is, he says, whoever hears these words of mine and does not apply them is like the one who builds his house on the sand. And when the storms of life come, they wash it away. However, the one who hears these words of mine and applies it to their life is like the one who's built on the rock. And when you come away from that, you look, realize both guys are in church. Both people who are hearing the message are both in church all year long. The difference, though, is, is that one has applied what they heard when they were at church, and the other one didn't. And so at the beginning of the year, I kind of like to start off by asking this question is, you know, what is it from this past year that you've applied? And so before we go and fill up a calendar with a whole other year's worth of sermons and messages, I always like to stop and look back and say, what is it that you've heard from this past year that you're able to apply? Because it's only the application that makes a difference. And I told the story about how uh, I built this brand new deck, and I was all excited about this deck I built on my house many years back. It was a wood deck. And my favorite part of any project is always the Home Depot part of the project where you get to home, go to Home Depot and buy stuff. And I remember spending a lot of time researching and finding the best sealer for the deck. And wouldn't you know, a couple years later, my deck rotted. And I was pretty frustrated. And the problem wasn't that the sealer didn't seal. The problem was that the applier never applied it. <laughs> so I had the deck... And I had the sealant, I just never applied it. And I don't want that to be your life, where you've got the message and you got the situation, but you never applied the message to your life situation. And if you don't apply it, then it's not going to make any difference. And so uh, I want to go back and look back over this past year before we go into a new year and ask the question, uh, what is it from this past year that we've been able to apply? And so to start off, we're going to go back to the past of this past year about a series about getting past the past. Yeah. The memories, even good ones, have a voracious appetite. If you're not careful, they consume you. One of the many themes in the Bible is about God always moving into the future, always calling us into where he wants to go next. And it seems like people are always reluctant to move out of the past and into the future, and you kind of wonder why is that. And sometimes we get stuck in our past, and we have a hard time getting past our past. There's a lot of times it's because of the things that have happened in the past that were difficult or traumatic or hard to deal with, and maybe, maybe, many of y'all know people who are stuck in the past. 
And in this series, we look back over the bad stuff that's happened in the past, kind of put it in one of three categories. Some of it is my bad, some of it is your bad, and some of it is just, it's bad. And we kind of talked about how each one of those different things uh, requires a, a different uh, application or a different understanding about what to do about it. And so for the my bad stuff, there's a lot of stuff I've done in the past that I regret, stuff I wish I hadn't have done, and I'm beating myself up over it. And so there's a lot of things that uh, are, are difficult for me to move forward because of the mistakes I've made in the past. And so our tendency is to look back on the my bad stuff with regret. However, many people are shocked to find out that God never asks anybody to regret anything. He never instructs regret. He never wants regret. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's the last thing he wants anybody to do with their past is to regret their past. And you say, well, why not? It seems like a lot of stuff back there I want to change. That's the thing. Can you go back and change the past? No. Rather, the word that God always uses is the word repent, which sounds like regret. It seems like it might be like regret, but it's not at all. It's very, very different. Repent is always forward-looking. Repent says, if I ever face that situation again, here's what I will do differently. Because repent is about what I can do. Regret is about something I can't do. I can't go back and change the past, but what I can do is make a decision to not go back and do, not, not do the same thing again the next time. And so God is always focused on repentance. So for the my bad stuff, God asks us to repent. But what about the stuff that I didn't do? What about the stuff that you did to me, that somebody else has done to me? What do I do with that? Well, when I don't deal with that, uh, I will move towards bitterness. The natural tendency of the soul with the stuff that's been done to me is to move towards bitterness. And that's where I get angry and I fester and it grows. And it's like an acid dripping on my soul day after day after day until it eats me away from within. And for that, God says the only remedy really for the things that have been done to you is to move to a place of grace and forgiveness. Uh, you've got to find some way to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean it's always communicated. It doesn't mean that it's, uh, there's always a reconciliation in the relationship. But you do need to move your heart towards forgiveness. After all, with everything God's forgiven you for, you've got to move to a place of forgiving them in the same way that God has forgiven you. And by the way, if some of these things sound difficult to do, or you're, or you're kind of like, I don't know about that, go back and re-listen. I'm only giving you the highlights here. Go back and re-listen. Uh, take a deeper dive before you just reject it on the face. After that, we talked about the stuff that's it's bad. It's not something you did. It's not something I did. It's just, there's just some things in life that just happen. So what do you do about the stuff in life that just happens? Sometimes we move towards despair. If we don't keep ourselves in check and don't keep ourselves in the proper perspective, we'll move towards despair, thinking to ourselves that this is just the way life is and life's going to be miserable. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's never going to turn out the way I want. And for that, God comes back and says, can you just trust me? I know what I'm doing. Can you trust that I'm in complete control? Can you go through life with a sense of hope and, even, dare I say, even joy, knowing I'm in complete control of everything and I will work out all things for the good uh, at some point in your life? Can you just trust me in this? And that's why my favorite verse in all of Scripture is Psalm 27, 13. I would have despaired if I didn't believe I would see God's goodness once again in my lifetime. Uh, and then the last part about that series we looked at is sometimes our reason why we have a hard time moving past the past is not because it was bad, but because it was so good. And we're always talking about the good old days and always wishing things could one day be again as good as they once were. We're almost convinced sometimes that our best days are in our past. And the older you get, sometimes the more we begin to believe this, that our best days are behind me. And God's like, no, the best is always yet to come. And I'm calling you into a future. And if you'll follow me and you'll trust me, I'm going to take you into a place that is unlike any you've ever been before. Will you just trust me to move into the future I have for you? And so that was our series on getting past the past. And after that... Uh, 
it's hard to remember that we were just coming out of COVID this time last year. We were still sort of emerging out of COVID. There were many of you who hadn't even come back to church in person. Some of you are still joining us online. You haven't come back in person. I just want to invite you once again. And so we went back to sort of uh, ask the question of why is it that we meet together in the first place with a series called Wholehearted. I said... It wasn't until that series you realized our church logo was four interlocking hearts. Anybody? Every every year, whenever we do a series or do something, people are like, I never saw that before. It was funny when we first designed that logo. Somewhere we made a page on the internet, and somebody sent me this forward. I don't know who saw it in Virginia Beach, but somebody saw it posted on this national site uh, on a list of churches who have lost their way and have abandoned the cross, and are atheistic in nature. And I'm like, huh? And I guess there is an atheistic symbol that has a letter A with an atomic mass circles around it. And so somebody saw our E with the circles around it and just somehow made that job. I'd never even seen some atheistic symbol with that. But I thought to myself, if some atheist sees our church logo and thinks this is a place for them... (laughs) Well, they're right. This is where I want them to be, right? Uh, but the question comes up is, uh, why do I need to be at church in the first place? And so we went back and looked at in, in Hebrews where it says, let us not give up uh, our habit of meeting together. And there was a couple things with that we'll get into, but uh, let me go back to the logo, though, before I get beyond it. When Jesus was asked, what's the most essential thing? He answers, to love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's where those four hearts all come from, is loving God, loving others in service and in groups, and then also loving yourself enough to take personal responsibility for your life. I also like the idea of the term wholehearted. remember years ago taking an Old Testament history class and seeing this word comes up again and again and again. When God talks about somebody who just really gets it, who really has a loving relationship with him, uh, he'll say, and he loved me with his whole heart, or he was wholeheartedly devoted to God. I just love this picture of somebody who is wholeheartedly devoted to God. And my vision or dream for you as a part of Essential is that you would be wholeheartedly following after God, that you'd be fully invested and committed to worship. You'd be fully invested and committed into groups, into serving, and to taking responsibility for uh, your own self. Now, in that passage in in Hebrews where it says, let us not give up meeting together, uh, the reason is because it talks about how you need to continue to encourage one another uh, in the difficult times. And I I mentioned two realities of life. One is that hope fades, and second of all, that hope is almost impossible to maintain alone. Somebody took those two message points, I guess they liked them, was inspired by it. I love it when you do this, that's cool. And they put it online, but they didn't give any context, they didn't link the message or anything, it just said... We need one another. We need to be at church because hope fades and is impossible to maintain alone. They got blasted, okay, with all these pious religious folks who said, well, I don't know why somebody thinks that they need others. I I get everything I need from God because God gives me my hope and I look to him for hope and I don't need anybody. Do you ever read posts online? That's that's the voice you read. Everybody has their own voice. That's the voice I read it in. It sounds very pious to say, well, I just get everything I need from God. Really? It's funny that Jesus didn't do that. 
He was looking to his friends and saying, hey guys, I'm about to give my life on the cross. Could you stay here and pray with me for a little while? I need you. Huh. It's crazy the way Jesus needed people. It's crazy the way it seems like everybody in scripture needed people. It's amazing that God didn't just allow us to morph into being or existence outside of the context of family, community. It's almost like as if God designed and created systems of community that we'd be around, that there is something about, there's, there's a value in coming together for worship. There's a value in coming together uh, and growing together in groups. We see over and over and over again, life change happens in groups. You will be the same person today as you were a year ago if, if, unless you get involved in a group. I'm also excited to let you know there are more groups being offered right now than at any time in the history of Essential Church. There are groups for marriage, groups for finances. There are men's groups, there are women's groups, there are couples groups. Uh, there are affinity-based groups, there are table groups. Uh, Pastor Chris, I think I'll come up and tell you more about all those different groups in a little while later on, but you can't do this alone. And to any of you who think, well, I can just, you know, I, God's all I need. Really? You know, what, you know what God's given you that you need? He's given you people. He's given you groups to be a part of because that's where life change happens. There's also, uh, Jesus's presence is manifested when we're together serving in groups. It says when you come together, you become the body of Christ. In other words, people know what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, not just when they're in your presence, but when they're in your presence, when you're together with other people who are serving him. When people walk into church and everybody is serving uh, God in the same way, we become the body of Jesus Christ. And we also need that encouragement to live, uh, love ourselves enough to live a holy life. And so that was a series on wholeheartedness, uh, wholeheartedly following after God. Um, my hope is that you'll go back and sort of revisit that series, understand why we do what we do as a church. Uh, after the wholehearted series, though, we moved into uh, a series about marriage. We went back and revisited the marriage vows where you say, I take you uh, to have and to hold for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, till death do we part. And uh, we filmed a few of you and your responses about what exactly that looked like for the for better or worse series. Which one of you is always late? <laughs> I th- oh, yeah, I'm later. Always. I mean, always. Yeah, always. always. Is it always is a tough question. Yeah, it is. How about maybe often? Sometimes. Uh, you late? Yeah, because I pack in lots of things. I think um, I can do ten in ten minutes. That's still more likely me. Who puts more on the credit card? Well, I buy the groceries. Huh. Yeah. Now, Thomas. <laughs> All right, you have five seconds to get out any pent of aggression you have for each other and beat each other with noodles. <laughs> Look, we need to talk. <laughs> when she turns, he goes, now, Thomas. I think everybody in the whole room could identify with that moment in their life. And then I love the... Uh, the throwback from one of the previous year's series where Jonathan says, we need to talk. Do you remember that series? Uh, the dreaded we need to talk series. Um, if you think about those marriage vows, though, about for better, for worse, and sickness and health, uh, for richer, for poor, uh, what is it you're really committing yourself to, right? I mean, you're, you're really committing yourself to somebody and you're told on the front end, you very well may be hitching your life up to a sick, broke person who's going to make life worse. Is that not what the marriage vow kind of is? And you'd ask yourself, why would anybody do that ever? Why did I do that? I'm still wondering the answer. Why? Well, because marriage calls us to the highest ideals of humanity. It calls us to the best of what a person can be. 
Because to be in a covenant committed relationship like that to somebody who has the potential to be sickly and broke and make your life worse and stay committed to them no matter what on the front and before any you know any of the way things are going to turn out it mirrors the kind of love God has for us and it's an opportunity that we have to become more like Jesus Christ in the uh, marriage or in the relationship that we have in a marriage relationship now there's a tendency to want to gravitate towards a consumer relationship. We like consumer relationships. Consumer relationships is, I'll do for you if you do for me, right? Uh, I will continue to shop at this store as long as they continue to provide the same kind of experience. I will continue to eat at Chick-fil-A as long as the experience is the same, right? Now, if their service drops off within a few years' time, you'll find your chicken somewhere else. You will. It always happens because that's a consumer relationship. A covenant relationship is a promise. It's a vow to say, I will, regardless if you will or not. Uh, I will be who I have promised to be, regardless of how things turn out. Uh, And I'm in this for life, for all eternity. And that mirrors the relationship God has with us, where God's made a commitment to each and every one of us that says, uh, I am in this for life, regardless of what happens. Even if you break the vow, I will keep the vow. Even if it costs me everything, even if it costs me my very life on the cross, I will keep that relationship with you. Now, Marriage is for this lifetime, but God's making a covenant with us for all eternity. And that's what the marriage vow is and, and does reflect. Um, let me see if there's anything else in here. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in that series. Uh, I would encourage you, if you uh, want to learn more about that or you want to kind of go back and reinvest in your marriage, go back and each of you listen to each of those messages. I think we had almost everybody on staff teach uh, part of that. Also, I want to take this moment to highlight next, or sorry, this year, the first weekend in March, like the second, third, fourth, somewhere in there, on Friday night and Saturday morning of that weekend, we're going to be having a, I don't, know, I don't want to call it a marriage retreat, we're doing it here. So we're having sort of a marriage weekend, if you will, where we're having a couple of guest speakers come in, uh, kind of a unique uh, cross-section. Nobody from our staff is going to be doing We have some people who, this is what they do. Um, very intriguing, I think. Uh, if you are married, have been married, ever thinking about doing the marriage thing ever again, come. You don't have to be married to come, just come. I think you'll get a lot out of it, understand a little bit more about marriage and relationships. So that's uh, March 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Put that on your calendar, save the date, uh, that Friday night, that Saturday morning, clear it out, find, you know, tell the kids they can't go to ball practice that morning, they, they, they have to put that game off, Aunt, uncles can take them to the game, something. Uh, invest in your relationship that weekend. Uh, after the marriage uh, series or we, last year, We went into a series that had probably the most unique bumper video of the year. I think a lot of people called it a little um, trippy. Yeah. Clap if you think you'd go to heaven. You know all y'all ain't going to no heaven. Half of y'all snuck liquor in here. And you you know on judgment day, you know it's going to be one brother standing in line ain't going to be able to take no for an answer. Yeah. <laughs> going to be one brother in line looking for a hookup. You know, trying to see if he knows somebody at the gate. You know, in line like ain't nothing wrong. Then he step up and he hears some bad news. Go to hell. Oh, you're going to play me, huh? 
trippy part wasn't Steve Harvey with hair. The trippy part was the uh, psychedelic stuff after. I call that series the Grace Conundrum. Uh, conundrum is a, uh, it's something that's confusing or difficult to understand. It's, it's, it's a problem that your mind has a hard time working out how it works out, so to speak. And that's what grace is. And grace is a hard concept for us to understand because we don't live in Graceland. We live in the real world. We live in a world where there's consequences. We live in a world where there's always strings attached. We live in a world where there's always some angle. There's always paybacks. There's grudges to deal with. That's the world we live in. And so when we enter into this existence or reality of who God is, and he begins to try to teach us about grace, it does not compute. That's why whenever somebody gives you a Christmas present, you always think to yourself, oh, what did I get for them, right? It's, it's always our mindset is if somebody does something for you, you have this idea of, well, what do I owe you for this? But, because that's the way we live. That's the world we live in. We have a hard time understanding grace. Grace is where God comes in and it says, uh, I'm going to pay for your sin. There's nothing you could ever do to earn it. There's nothing you could ever do to deserve it. There's no way you could ever pay me back for this. I will pay 100% of your sin debt. I will die in your place. I will take your punishment uh, on myself as though I deserved it and you didn't. I will give you everything I earned and everything I deserved for living a sinless life. I'm just going to hand it to you. I'm even going to call you saint. And many of us feel uncomfortable even being called a saint. I'm not a saint. I'm no saint. I still know I'm a sinner at heart, even though I come to church, even though I might even say that I'm forgiven, even though I might say I believe in grace. If you call me a saint, it's still just doesn't feel right, does it? If somebody were to call you saint. No, there's other people out there who are a lot better than I am. They're saints. No, I'm not Catholic, but I think I think Mother Teresa is a saint. I'm not a saint. There's certainly other people out there. Saint Paul, Saint Peter, Saint, they're all saints. I'm not a saint. God says, no, you are a saint. You are holy. There is nothing in your past that you have ever done wrong. You are sinless because you've been set free from your past because of what I've done. That is what grace is into the conundrum because we just can't possibly understand it or grasp it. Every time we think we do, we slip right back into thinking to ourselves, I don't know if God could ever love me after what I've just done. I think I've blown it again. If you think that, it's because you don't understand grace. Grace is ridiculous. Grace is not normal. Grace is not natural. It is a supernatural thing. It is a gift of God. And my hope is that you would understand what grace truly is because that's the key to having a loving relationship with God that you'll enjoy for all eternity. You have to be able to understand grace. And throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and even in today, there's this idea that good people go to heaven and bad people don't. That's You'll see issues of that in the Old Testament. You'll see issues of the New Testament. And that happens even today. So people still believe that. And the question always comes up is, where are all these good people at, right? Where, where are all these people? And like when Steve Harvey says, you know, clap if you think you're going to heaven, most of the time people clap because, well, I'm a good person. I'm better than a lot of other people. I'm not as, you know, I, if, you know, if half go and half don't, then I'm probably on the better half, right? I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not, I'm not all that bad. Until you realize that God's standard for those who go to heaven based on merits is perfection. And nobody is perfect. Well, how are you going to get in then? Grace. It's not until you fully understand grace that you can fully understand your relationship with God. Now, uh, once you understand that, you begin to realize that uh, I don't just need to be grace. I need to be a uh, sharer of grace. I need to help other people show grace to one another. And that's the next series we went into, which was about building bridges. What? Yeah, well, Dad reminded me of all that Christian stuff, you know, what our church is about and how this could really impact you and what grace looks like and blah, blah. 
I have decided to forgive you. So, um, just like that. This is what we do. clip from the movie Resurrection of Gavin Stone, what's happened is that she's been hurt by him and she's struggling to forgive him. And uh, somebody in her life who's a Christian comes and talks with her about, you know, about what grace is all about and what Jesus Christ did and what our church is always preaching about and blah, 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 blah. Somebody saw the need to build a bridge between those two. And what I love about the bumper video is, is this guy looking up there and there's this big gap, this big chasm between two sides. And where everybody else sees a problem and sees an obstacle, sees a gap that cannot be crossed, he sees a bridge being built. And so he constructs a way and designs a way for that bridge to happen. That is our role as Christians, uh, is that we are um, to be emissaries of grace, that we are to be uh, ambassadors of God's grace, uh, sharing this with others. And so in that series, just two weeks, we looked at the entire book of Philemon. We did a whole book in two, in two weeks. Of course, it's only like 27 chapters. That's the whole book. But the whole book is about uh, something that's happened between Onesimus, a guy named Onesimus and Philemon. Onesimus has done something to hurt Philemon, and Philemon's bitter about it and can't seem to forgive him for it. And Paul has a good relationship with both of them. And so Paul sees that his role is to try to build a bridge between these two. And so if you're in a situation where you know two people who aren't getting along and you need to build a bridge, that might be a series to go back to and revisit. Uh, After the bridge building series, we uh, spent the summer looking at the way Jesus taught and how he taught in parables. Some mistakes get made, that's all right, that's okay. In the end, it's better for me. That's the moral of the story, babe. Oh, that was your favorite series of the year. Some, a lot, after the after last service, I asked a question, and I had somebody come and go, that was actually my favorite service. I just didn't want to raise my hand. I'm like, <laughs> all right, but at least four or five of y'all in here liked it. I don't know. I, we got more feedback, I think, from that series than any other, where we really were just looking at Jesus's teaching style, how he used parables. Parables, uh, they were stories, but they were stories with a purpose. And when Jesus told stories, uh, he was doing it to do two things. One is to reveal, and the other was to conceal. Uh, and he was doing it to reveal truth in a way that you could receive it. See, whenever somebody has something that they want to share with you that would, let's say, a word of correction, uh, they're, they're calling you out for either a faulty idea, faulty belief, or faulty practice, uh, faulty behaviors. Uh, our tendency, maybe you're like this, but a lot of folks, our tendency is to get very defensive, right? Where we're always trying to defend ourselves and have reasons for why we do it. We have all our justifications. But what Jesus would do is he would tell a story, and he'd be telling a story about like two sons. You'd be like, oh yeah, that first son, he was a bad son. I don't know why he did something like that. And you're like, yeah, he was a bad son, wasn't he? But yeah, guess who that son represents? Who? You. (gasps) Oh, right? It was a way to get past your biases, the way to get past your defenses, to help you apply truth that you agree on and see how that applies to you before you get defensive. So it was a very powerful way to apply and reveal truth about ourselves or about God, things that we had wrong in our theology or things we had wrong in our practice. So it was a very powerful way to reveal truth. And he would often say this little phrase at the end of his parables, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, if you really want to know what I'm talking about, what I'm speaking, how you apply this, then just think a little about it for a little bit. Let it marinate on this a little bit. Ask yourself the question of 
who am I in this story? Now, he would also want to conceal who he was or conceal the message. You say, well, why would Jesus want to conceal a message? What good teacher would conceal what it is they're trying to teach? That doesn't sound like a very smart idea. Well, if you're teaching in a situation where a lot of the people out there are just looking for a soundbite to attack you with, just think of like our political sphere, right? How everybody's looking for a soundbite to make somebody look bad, right? Well, there were these guys who were trying to find a reason to put Jesus to death, Clearly they did later, but they were always looking for a reason to accuse him. And so they would send their minions out to go listen to him teach so they could bring back a soundbite that they could use to accuse him. And it was very frustrating for them because they'd go and they'd be like, well, I'll tell you what, man, he was calling us out. Oh, what did he say? Tell me what he said. Well, he was talking about like, like a tree and some weeds. And I think we were the weed, but he didn't really say we were the weed, but I think it was pretty clear that we were the weed. Huh? Well, go back when you have something. Okay, what did he say this time? Well, he was talking about two sons, and I think we were the bad son or the good. I'm not really sure. We were the older brother. I think we were doing the right thing, but it sounded like as if he made us out to be the bad guy. I don't really know. Huh? Go back again. Well, he talked about this servant who, who did some good stuff, but then he did some bad stuff, and, and, he, and he, I don't know. They never could nail him down on anything because he would teach in parables. And so we conceal what he was trying to communicate, and they would also walk away never having learned anything about themselves or about God because they weren't there to learn that. They were just there to try to look for an accusation. So it was this brilliant teaching method to both reveal truth to those who wanted to hear it, but conceal truth from those who were just looking for a sound bite to accuse them with. And so the parables could reveal and conceal. So if you want to go and learn more about the teaching style of Jesus or some of the things that Jesus taught, uh, I would encourage you to go back to the parable series from this past year. Uh, to learn more about that. Uh, after that, we went into a series that we just couldn't figure out what to call it. Uh, we've done the series in the past. Uh, we did some t-shirts associated with it called I Love My Church, and we weren't really sure whether to call it I Love My Church, or You'll Love My Church, or They'll Love My Church, or We'll Love My Church. It was kind of like that movie, I like to move it, move it, you know, at the end, like, did I, did I do I, did I do they, they, they like to move it? I don't know. But I love Essential because all of my friends are here. We, we love, love the, the people, people here. here. I love my church uh, because of the people, the atmosphere, and everyone's heart for God. I love a simple church because of you. I firmly believe that the hope of the world is the local church. Furthermore, it's pretty clear in Scripture that God's uh, plan for redeeming the city of Virginia Beach uh, begins with the church. Uh, that this is the epicenter of God's activity in our community was the church. It was the institution that Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. There's a lot of other good things out there in this world that are accomplishing God's purposes, but it's in the church where God is primarily at work. It's in the church where we get to be the hands and feet, the, the body of Christ when we come together. And so we couldn't really tell if we should say, I love my church, or hey, you should come because you'll love my church. Uh, or is it, you know, we love our church together. Uh, we had food trucks and ice cream trucks and different kinds of fun stuff about that during this series, if that's when all this was going down. Um, and in this series, uh, talked about how uh, there was somebody who was moving to Virginia Beach. They were a church person. They'd been growing up in church. And they were asking somebody about churches in Virginia Beach, and they were rattling off different churches they think, I thought they might like. And then they got to Essential, and they're like, yeah, I don't know. It, just warn you on the front, and Essential's just different, Right? And they showed up here, and they told me about that, and they're like, yeah, it really is different. Now, we're different for a reason, different intentionally. And if you don't understand 
why we're trying to be different. We're not just trying to be different for a different state. We're different for a very unique purpose, and that is we want to remove every non-essential barrier between people and God. That's one of the places we get our name from is from this mission statement. We want to remove every non-essential barrier between people and God. And so people often will come here from another church, and they have all kinds of ideas on how we could become a better church, i.e. how we could become better than the other church down the street. But I would say, we're not trying to out-church the other churches. We're not trying to be the best church in Virginia Beach. We want to become the best church for you to invite your lost friends to. We want to become the best church to be able to invite somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that will last for eternity, to invite them here so they can know how they can have a loving relationship with Jesus that will last for all eternity. Now, what's interesting is that when somebody gets on board with that and realizes that's who we are and what we're trying to be, their critiques about the church change and what they notice about the church change, and what they value and like about the church changes. It's like this. When somebody invites somebody to church and they know a friend of theirs is coming, oftentimes it's the first time that they appreciate that there's a parking team. You know who you are. You don't like the fact that somebody told you where to park. However, the fact that a friend of yours could have come in here and find a place quickly without having to circle a parking lot like you do at the stopping mall, think about comparing your experience at a mall versus your experience at Essential Church when you come to park. You're in, you're out, and you're in the door, right? It's the first time you appreciate the fact that somebody got here on a cold morning and made some good coffee, right? Some, some good coffee where they can feel comfortable. Anybody know what, like we always have like the flavor. What's the flavor of the month right now? Anybody? Okay, maybe I need to rework that one for next service. I don't know if that's the best, the best, but it is good coffee though. I just don't know what to say. Here's a death wish. Thank you for coming to Essential Church. Uh, did you get your death wish at Essential? Sure did. Um... But it's the first time you really appreciate the fact that they get some good coffee in their hand. It's the first time you really appreciate the fact that there's somebody who is serving in the kids' ministry who's prepared, welcoming, and the kids love the time that they get to spend there. It changes the way you see the church and what you appreciate. It even changes the way you think about the way that we teach our messages here. And so there are sometimes people get critical. Why is it all? I just want more Bible teaching. I just want you to get up there like a boring sermon lecture. Why do I do the stuff we do? You're actually learning the scriptures a lot deeper than you realize. But I do it in such a way that you'll be able to take it in regardless of what your biblical background is. You can be the first time ever coming in church or be here for many years, but he who has ears, let them hear. And so you'll love the fact that your lost friend can come in here and be impacted by the word of God and have something they can take home, apply, and maybe even consider. It changes the way you see church when you invite somebody to church. And so I want you to say with full confidence, you'll love my church. I love my church, and I know you'll love my church. So maybe someday together with them, you'll be able to say, we love our church. But there's another thing in there that says they love my church. See, there's a they out there that doesn't come to Essential, that loves Essential. There are people who live in Nicaragua. There are people who live in Northern Africa. There's people who live over in Southeast Asia. They love Essential Church. They will probably never come here in person, but they love you because you put your money where your mouth is, because you love people enough and you love God enough to put aside a portion of what God's blessed you with so that the ministry of the gospel can go not only here in Virginia Beach, but around the world. And so you're making an impact every time you give back a portion of what God's blessed you with. And so there's a lot of people who love Essential who you'll never get to meet this side of eternity. So after the uh, you'll love, my, they'll love, we love, all that stuff, church, uh, we moved into the fall with uh, probably everybody's favorite uh, bumper music of the year, which was Battle Ready. The Lord tells me he can get me out of this mess. <laughs> No! 
Don't open your mouth. Don't open your mouth. Don't open your mouth. Run. passage in Judges we see there in Judges 3 that's a little disturbing. It says God left enemies in the land uh, so they would have a war to fight, and he did this to train them in the art of war. And you might think to yourself, why would God purposely leave an enemy in my path that I've got to fight? I would think that God would clear out all my enemies. And we sung a song this morning, you're my defender, you go before me, you knock out my enemies. That's the God I want. I don't want a God who leaves stuff in my path, and God comes back and like, well, you don't get to choose which God you get because there's only one God and it's me. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to leave a battle for you to fight. Why? Because we need to stay on our toes. We need to stay in fighting shape. We need to always be battle ready. Uh, when you go through long periods of complacency and peace, what ends up happening is that you get out of shape spiritually. You get out of shape and you drift in your relationship with God. And so sometimes we need a battle to fight to remain focused on what we need to be focused on, to remain in the proper spiritual shape that we need to be in. And so why would God do this? Why would he put a battle for you to fight? Because it's in those battle times, those testing times, that you begin to realize, do you really love God or not? Can you really trust God or not? Do you truly rely on God or are you relying on yourself? It's only in those times that you know what you're made of, so to speak, that you know who you really are or what you can really trust when you go through those times. And so Job 23.10, when he goes through his issue, he says, God knows the way that I take, and when he's tested me, I can come forth as gold. Over in the New Testament, Peter says the same thing, that in, in the midst of these trials, I want to come out so it might prove out the genuineness of my faith. So in this series, we you know, shifted our focus from Judges over to Ephesians, where it talks about the battles we fight, fate, face, fight, fight. Anyways, sometimes I mix up words, fight and face. Um, where he says, Ephesians 12, or 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So you saw in there, there was two clips from Braveheart. One is where it's stand firm. And in this passage, it says you need to stand firm. You need to stand firm in your relationship with God. When all hell breaks loose in your life, you need to know you can trust God. Stand firm in your faith. Do not waver. Know that you can trust God. But there's other times where God's word says, don't stand, run. What do you mean run? There are some battles you cannot fight. You need to run. And when that cricket's walking up your tie, it's not a time to stand firm, right? It's a time to go, ah, and run, right? That's what you need to do in that moment. You need to run because you have to realize there are some things you can't, you're not strong enough to fight that battle. You need to run, get out of there, and God will provide a way out. Uh, when, you, when you recognize that temptation is like being in an escape room where there is a way out, you will try to find that way out. And the longer you remain in temptation, the harder it is to find that way out. All that's part of that series. We talked about in Proverbs 4, uh, he gives you this admonition. Avoid it, don't walk in it, go a different way. Right? Remember, avoid it, don't walk in it, go a different way. Find, turn from it, go a different way. Find some other way out. And also in there, we realize that the two primary ways that we can fight against the stuff that comes in our life, whatever adversity it might be, uh, one is to have Scripture memorized. It does you no good to have a weapon if you don't have it on you, right? I'm not giving you a gun rights you know, issue. I'm just telling you it does no good to have a weapon if you don't have it on you. It, it does you no good. It is of no value to you. And unless you have Scripture memorized that you can have in the moment, it's of no value to you. And the second thing about it is prayer, to start every day off in prayer. That's why the Lord's Prayer says things like, lead us not into 
temptation, right? But deliver us from evil. Uh, the prayer of Jabez says, you know, that I might not sin and cause pain. Uh, that, Lord, keep me away from doing things that are wrong because I don't want to hurt the people around me. If you would start off every day re- recognizing and realizing that there's a battle to fight every day, it will change your outlook on life. You need to be battle ready. But sometimes uh, it's hard to be battle ready because we get stuck somewhere or there's a battle in our mind that hits us before we even begin. And so our next series after battle ready was stuck. I can't get my mind free. I can't get unstuck. In that series, we moved over to 2 Corinthians 10 that talked about how there are strongholds in our life. A stronghold is something we believe. It's a lie that we believe about God, his nature, or ourselves, and about our nature, about our character, what we're capable of or not capable of. And what happens is over time, we tell ourselves these lies over and over and over and over again, and it becomes our mindset. It becomes the way we see life, the way we see things that happen to us in life. And we get stuck in these things. And unless you intentionally try to break free from them in your behaviors, your relationships, and your finances, you will continue to stay stuck. And so after that, we moved into, we kind of went from just being stuck to having stuck holiday edition. And in holiday edition, we talked about a lot of relationships, which can be toxic. And probably the best takeaway from that piece of the series was what is good advice in a healthy relationship is usually bad advice for a toxic relationship. And so if you're struggling with any of those kind of things, go back and revisit it. Um, And so with that, uh, as you look to the future, I guess I ask this question is, what from this past year has impacted you and changed your trajectory, who you are as a person, how you see life, how you do life? Uh, And if you look back and say, I don't know if I'm any different now than I was a year ago, well, my question is then is, if you've heard all these words of mine and not put them into practice, you will continue to be like somebody who's building their house on the sand. What is it from this past year you need to go back and revisit and apply before you're ready to move into this next year? We join with you as we close our time in prayer. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace that covers us all. May we move into 2023 seeking to apply the message and the words that you've given us. Because its application is going to make all the difference. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.